Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Hello and welcome to this episode of Memorable Cases with Michael Beloff Casey, Ian Mill Casey, Catherine Callahan Casey and Tim Parker. In this episode, barristers will share their most memorable cases from their careers, offering unique insights into the legal world. My name is Michael Beloff Casey, and my role today is to talk about my most cherished cases from my casebook as an advocate. Let me start with my first ever case. It was decided in a court at the lowest rung of the legal system, but one with a famous history, the Bow Street Magistrates Court, which closed in 2006 after 266 years and is now a hotel and local police museum. I remember the case, as any of you who are or become barristers will, simply because it was my very first case. It was an application for bail on behalf of a self-styled progressive pop group called The Love Affair, which, like so many in the swinging 60s, followed in the slipstream of the Beatles to the top of the charts, and then, like a musical mayfly, perished, metaphorically, not literally, after the briefest period in the public eye and ear. What nefarious crime had this all-male quartet committed? In 1968, there was a statue of Eros, the Greek god of love, in the middle of Piccadilly Circus. Some cunning publicist thought that the group could maximise the sales of their best-known song, Everlasting Love, by posing in front of the statue. Unfortunately, if somewhat predictably, they attracted a huge number of screaming teenage fans, which caused the through traffic to come to a complete stop, so they were charged with creating a public nuisance. Even those of you at the very start of your legal education, or indeed before it, will recognise that the chances of the defendants being committed in custody for so minor offence were between nil and negligible. So the application for bail pending their trial could safely be entrusted even to a complete novice like me. My pupil master, nowadays sometimes called a supervisor, whom I'd followed round the courts for a year to learn the tricks of the trade from his trials and his errors, before I could be unleashed to argue a case myself, had an upmarket commercial and libel practice. I'd never been to any magistrate's court in his company, or indeed at all. In my innocence of the layout of the court, I walked straight into the dock and had to be redirected by a kindly policeman into the advocate's row before my case was called on. I cannot remember what I said. I suspect I had spilt much midnight oil in polishing my rhetoric, but to be candid, it mattered not. The group were inevitably granted bail. For my part, I had won my first case and no less importantly, earned my first fee. While the group's appearance on their release from the court excited huge cheers, I slunk by in total silence back to my chambers. Still, my track record was now played one, won one. There were, had I but known it, a thousand plus cases to go, during which my average would never be quite as good as that. Here endeth my first lesson. 
to the Chinese school of Malaysia. Fast forward three decades. By now, I had just taken silk. I had a spanking new silk gown, though my ever more battered wig remained the same. I was entitled to sit in the front row of the court if there were two reserved for counsel. But like all freshly fledged silks, I was anxious to discover whether, after I'd finally finished the cases I had started as a junior, I was ever to get any new work at all. Now, as it turns out, I have appeared in the courts of 10 Commonwealth countries, East and West, in Europe and beyond. But I've chosen to focus on the first of them, which remains the most interesting case I have ever done anywhere. The case concerned the wish of the minority ethnic Chinese community in Malaysia to found a university which provided tuition in their own language. The universities in Malaysia all taught in Bahasa, which is the official Malay tongue, and access to them was also more difficult for Chinese students because the government's policy of positive discrimination in favour of the majority Malay or Bumiputra population. But the government refused permission for the proposed Chinese university, a decision which my Chinese clients wished to challenge by way of judicial review. I was not their first choice of counsel. They had instructed a Chancery QC. He was unable to untangle himself from a protracted commercial arbitration so as to be available for the dates fixed by the High Court in Kuala Lumpur for the hearing of the case. My good fortune was his misfortune. My clients sent a search party of several lawyers to England with a mission to find a QC, hopefully marketed by his clerks as a specialist in constitutional law, who, at three weeks' notice, would be free, willing and able to step in for a hearing scheduled to last up to a month. I at least satisfied those triple criteria. So off I went to a faraway Asian country, which at that stage I could barely place on a map. On arrival, I had a crash course in the history and politics of Malaysia and the tensions between the Chinese and Malays, which had in the not too recent past actually erupted into violence. With no fewer than 11 juniors, surely some kind of record, I argued the case at first instance with the benefit of an opinion by Sir William Wade QC, the preeminent English academic public lawyer, and Sir Peter, later Lord Rawlinson QC, a former law officer. They expressed the view that the government's refusal to license the Chinese university was clearly unlawful because it was motivated by racial discrimination. This was easier said in an opinion authored in London and advanced orally in a court in Kuala Lumpur, and it was firmly denied by the Deputy Prime Minister whom I had to cross-examine. In fact, the result of the case turned on a quite different point. The Malaysian constitution required the use of Bahasa by all public authorities, and the government argued successfully, if counterintuitively, that this included a private university, a proposition which had been dismissed in a single unreasoned sentence by the Wade-Rawlinson combo. Underlying the more technical arguments was an issue which I discovered had engaged politicians and judges in many other jurisdictions. In a nutshell, whether, and if so, how far, use of a single language should be promoted by law 
in the interest of national unity. When the case proceeded to the Court of Appeal, I myself experienced firsthand the emotions raised by the case among Malaysians. Techniques, both sweet and sour, outside the courtroom were used to put me off my stride inside it. I was offered the temptation of a classic honey trap. I was threatened by an anonymous telephone caller with the deposit of my body in the Klang River if I didn't get out of town within 24 hours. The Malaysian Attorney General, my opponent, and I went to see the Lord President, chair of the five-person bench in his chambers, before the case was called off. The Lord President then made a statement in open court designed to deter any further attempts on my life, if not of my virtue, that I was simply fulfilling my professional duty as an advocate to argue a client's case to the best of my ability, a principle of high importance to the bar in any country. Nonetheless, both the government and my clients decided to provide me with bodyguards for the remainder of my stay. It was, I must confess, with a sense of relief that I settled, unscathed, into my premier class seat in a Malaysian Airlines jumbo jet on my return journey to London. In the Court of Appeal, my clients lost the case by a majority of four to one, the Malay judge being the single vote in their favour. And appeals on constitutional cases from Malaysia to the Privy Council, having recently, and it may be presciently, abolished, there was no opportunity to test our argument further before a geographically detached tribunal. But no less a luminary than Tom Bingham, holder of the judicial triple crown, as successively Master of the Rolls, Lord Chief Justice and Senior Law Lord told me privately that he thought our argument was correct. That case and its consequences still excite discussion in Malaysia, a country to which I've returned for profit and with pleasure on many subsequent occasions. But in purely professional terms, it opened the door to me for further Far Eastern forensic adventures in Kuching, Singapore, Brunei, and Hong Kong. So what, if anything, do I suggest that you take from this whistle-top tour of these cases? First, that pure luck can truly play a large part in a barrister's career, even though, I should add, as the great South African golfer Gary Player once said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Second, because of that, never turn any offer of a case down unless you absolutely have to. If you turn it down, you'll never know what might, if you'd accepted it, have turned up, and if not once, then in the future. Third, life at the bar can be hard work, but it can also be great fun. I mentioned already at the start of this talk that I've written a memoir about my life inside and outside the law, but my fourth, and I promise you my last point is this, if something is worth saying once, it's usually worth saying twice. So feel free, if you wish, Google my name, Michael Belloff, that's one L and two Fs, and read all about it. My name is Ian Mill. I'm a KC in Blackstone Chambers, and this is my account of not one, but two memorable cases uh, in areas in which I've specialized in my career of 40 years. I have chosen to focus on uh, an area of practice to which I'm probably best known, 
and which has provided so many great memories and a few painful ones as well. That is the field of music litigation. Uh, I was asked to find one case and I found it quite impossible to do so. But I have instead decided to speak on two cases which effectively bookend my career to date and also I think help to demonstrate the range of work and the issues which music litigation has offered over the years. My first case was George Michael's claim back in the early 90s against his record company, Sony Music, to be released from the ties his recording agreement had imposed on him on the basis of the doctrine of restraint of trade. Uh, I was instructed as one of George's team. This was to prove to be the last in a series of such cases, previous well-known cases that involved Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Stone Roses, prompted by the attitude of record companies and music publishers back then to invest in the future of their signed artists, but in return to require those artists to be bound exclusively at the company's option for very long periods. Too long, in the case of the two bands that I've just mentioned. This case was memorable for so many reasons. At a personal level, I was awestruck by the polite, thoughtful intelligence and charm of the client. Uh, secondly, I recall vividly extraordinary scenes outside the law courts in the Strand when George arrived to give evidence and when he left at the end of the court day. It needed half a dozen dark-suited minders to hold back the crowds, one of whom literally hurled me into the back of a blacked-out BMW which was taking George away from court at the end of one court day. And then there was the piece of paper that I and a few others were permitted to read on which George had written his net worth in answer to a question from Sony's counsel, the late, great Gordon Pollock QC. This was the moment when I knew we would lose the case in front of our judge, Jonathan Parker. From a legal perspective, this was the last case of its kind Mr. Justice Jonathan Parker adopted a more record company friendly approach, but that I don't think is the main reason for that. We believed we would have won in the Court of Appeal, but a settlement intervened. The real reason why it was the last case of its kind was that record companies and music publishers had learned their lessons from earlier court losses, and there was already at that stage a diminishing appetite on their part for long-term contracts. They were increasingly looking for short-term returns, a strategy which, combined with the growth of internet piracy, led to a financial crisis for the industry in the noughties, from which they have since been rescued by iTunes, Spotify and the advent of streaming. Uh, so far, we've spoken about music litigation from a contractual perspective, but music litigation also frequently engages copyright issues. This was the case last year when I acted for Ed Sheeran Johnny McDade and Steve Mack, the co-writers of Shape of You. Three of the nicest people you could hope to meet. They were accused of plagiarism, something which they found deeply hurtful, and as the judge correctly found, without any justification whatsoever. My personal memories are very many, but I've picked out three. The first is being in the studio where the song was written and have them go through the process of its creation process that largely due to the mercurial talent that is Ed Sheeran was finished within 90 minutes. Secondly, knowing that after court each day, the three of them attended throughout the case, they were going to go back to Steve Mack's studio to write new songs. 
I believe they wrote at least 50 during the trial, some of which will feature on Ed's new album, which is about to be released. In my experience, many artists suffer writer's block due to the trauma of a trial. These three endured that trauma, but somehow managed to use it creatively to their advantage. My third memory was watching Ed and Johnny on Newsnight following the judgment. They were measured, dignified, and serious about their experience and their hopes for the future. Surely Newsnight has never before or since attracted anything like the audience that that interview generated. From a legal perspective, what is notable is that the case was decided by a specialist IP judge who had deep musical knowledge as a composer and as a musician. His judgment was exemplary and which should have the effect in this country that Ed hopes that it will, which is to discourage unwarranted attacks on writers' artistic integrity. Unfortunately, that is not the case in the United States where for reasons best known to the legal authorities over there, uh, such matters are decided not by a specialist IP judge, but by a jury. And uh, poor Ed uh, is facing such a jury in New York later this month in relation to a claim of plagiarism uh, brought by the estate of Marvin Gaye in relation to Ed's song, Thinking Out Loud. We'll never settle uh, such cases. He will have to see them through. Uh, I have no doubt that he will prevail, uh, despite the bizarre system which he's having to endure there. So those are my thoughts on those two cases. Thank you very much for uh, listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing from me as much as I've enjoyed the process of telling you about them. Hello, I'm Catherine Callahan, and today I'll be discussing my most memorable case, Mr. and Mrs. M., against the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. This case took place around 10 years ago and involved a woman who wanted to give birth to her own grandchild. Yes, you heard that right. The claimant, Mrs. M, wanted to be implanted with her daughter's eggs and to give birth to her own grandchild. This case took place against a background of personal tragedy the claimant's only child, a young woman, tragically died of cancer in her late 20s. Before she died, during a period of remission from her cancer, the daughter underwent a procedure to remove, freeze and store her eggs, unfertilized. She hoped at that time to be able to have a child herself one day in the future with a future partner. But after her cancer returned and her health worsened, she had a conversation with her mother in which she expressed a wish for her mother to carry her child as a surrogate and for her parents to bring up the child themselves if she didn't survive. After their daughter's death, the claimants decided that they wanted the eggs to be fertilized by an anonymous sperm donor to be chosen by them and for the resulting embryos to be implanted in Mrs. M, the mother, for her to carry to term. They felt that this would honour their daughter's dying wishes. But it wasn't permissible under UK law because the daughter had not given written consent to this proposed use of her eggs. However, the UK regulator had the power to waive the requirement for written consent when giving approval for export of gametes or embryos 
So the parents applied for permission from the regulator to export the eggs to a fertility clinic in New York for use in the way they proposed. The defendant regulator, the HFEA, refused permission for the export of the eggs on the basis that there was insufficient evidence that the daughter wanted her eggs to be used in this way or that she understood the implications of this proposed use. In particular, the defendant wasn't convinced that the daughter would have consented to the use of an anonymous sperm donor or to the export of her eggs to a foreign country or that she had been provided with sufficient information about the risks for her mother's health of a surrogacy arrangement or the legal implications of such an arrangement. In short, they concluded that the daughter's conversation with her mother was not a sufficiently clear or informed expression of her wishes. The parents launched a judicial review claim in which they challenged the lawfulness and rationality of the regulator's decision. I was instructed to act for the defendant regulator to defend the decision. In the High Court, at first instance, the judge accepted my submissions that the defendant's decision was lawful and rational. The judge held that there was no sufficiently clear evidence that the daughter had intended this precise use of her eggs. In particular, there was no evidence that she had ever contemplated or consented to the export of her eggs or the use of a sperm donor or one selected by her parents or that she'd thought through the implications of foreign law governing the ability of the child to establish the identity of its father and make contact with the father or the implications for her mother's health or the legal implications for her mother acting as a surrogate, namely, that her mother would be recognised as the legal mother of the child. The judge agreed that the daughter had had time before her death to discuss all of the practical and legal issues, but hadn't done so. Unsurprisingly, the claimants appealed to the Court of Appeal. At that stage, the Court of Appeal overturned the decision of the defendant and of the court below. The Court of Appeal approached the evidence very differently from the High Court. The Appeal Court considered that it was wrong to focus on whether the daughter had given consent to the exact use of her eggs that her parents proposed. It considered that the conversation between the mother and daughter clearly showed that the daughter wanted her mother to carry her baby after her death and that she trusted her mother and father to make all the necessary decisions that would enable her baby to be born, including who the sperm donor should be. In effect, the court found that the daughter entrusted her eggs to her mother to use as she thought best to bring her child into the world. The Court of Appeal also held that the defendant had failed to explain why the daughter needed to have information about all the necessary steps that would have to be taken for her mother to carry the babies. It considered that the daughter didn't need this information because it wasn't going to be relevant to her own treatment, it was going to be relevant to her mother's treatment and was therefore a matter for the mother to consider alone. So the decision was quashed and the claimants got permission for export of the eggs and treatment overseas. I never did find out 
what happened to these parents and whether they were successfully able to have the child they so wanted. So why is this case so memorable to me? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, the facts of the case are obviously unusual and interesting. But more than that, the case had a personal resonance for me because I took on the case just after undergoing treatment for cancer myself. I remember reading the case papers not long after I returned to work from a year's break. And I cried when I read what had happened to this poor young woman and her parents. I felt that it could have been me in the daughter's situation, and I empathized with the parents' desire to keep their daughter's memory alive by trying to have her child. It was hard for me as an individual to defend a decision to refuse to give them what they desperately wanted, a way out of their grief. But it reminded me that the role of a barrister is to represent your client, whoever that client may be, to the best of your ability. And I did just that. I put my personal feelings to one side and I worked hard to make the best possible case for my client that I could. The case was also memorable because it was one of the first times that a case I had won resoundingly at first instance was overturned on appeal. I learned that no matter how strong you think your case is, a judge or judges may take a different view from you and from each other about the merits of your case. It taught me that you should not expect the same result from a court at each stage. A case that looks obviously winnable can turn out to be obviously losable and vice versa. It's the barrister's role not to take a loss personally, to pick yourself up from a loss, learn from it, and move on to the next case. I hope you found this case interesting. Thank you for listening. I'm Tim Parker. The case I'm going to talk about is the Hong Kong case of QT against Director of Immigration, which was a judicial review concerning dependent visas for same-sex couples in Hong Kong. Now, the background to that case was that the applicant, QT, and her partner, SS, were civil partners in the UK. This was prior to the introduction of same-sex marriage in the UK in 2013. SS had been granted a work visa for Hong Kong, and together they'd applied for a dependent visa for QT to join her. The dependent visa would have allowed QT to live and work in Hong Kong. However, the Hong Kong Immigration Department refused that application. Under the policy, dependent visas were only available for spouses. And since Hong Kong law does not provide for same-sex marriage or civil partnership, said the director, QT could not be treated as SS's spouse. QT challenged that decision on judicial review. The principal ground of review was that the policy was discriminatory because, without justification, it treated same-sex couples less favorably on grounds of their sexual orientation. And more than that, the policy was outright irrational. The aim of the policy had been to attract talent to Hong Kong by making it attractive for people to relocate there with their families. The exclusion of same-sex couples from the policy therefore worked against its very own objective. The challenge failed at first instance. 
the judge found that it was both rational and justified for the director to adopt a policy that mirrored the position of Hong Kong's laws on marriage and that the director could not be required to recognize same-sex partnerships that were not valid as a matter of law in Hong Kong. QT appealed to the Court of Appeal. On appeal, we were able to secure the ad hoc admission of Dinah Rose KC, then QC, to lead me in the appeal. I had previously worked with Dinah in a competition-related judicial review in Hong Kong and thought that she would be ideal to front QT's case on appeal. The director was at this point represented by Monica Carr Frisk KC, also of Blackstone Chambers, so the case had become something of an all-Blackstone affair. At the hearing, the Court of Appeal put to Dinah the thesis that since Hong Kong law did not provide for same-sex couples to marry, it must follow that it could not be discriminatory to deny unmarried people, including same-sex couples, the corpus of rights and obligations that flow from married status. In one of the great advocacy performances that I've had the good fortune to see throughout my career, Dinah persuaded the court that even on that analysis, migrating together as a couple was a matter of immigration discretion and not a legal incident or right that followed from being married. The court accepted that argument and found for QT, holding that the exclusion of same-sex couples was self-defeating in view of the director's own stated objective of attracting talent. The director then appealed to the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal, where he was then represented by Lord Panic KC. We had a considerably easier time in that court, which took little persuading that the policy was indeed irrational and discriminatory. In its judgment, the Court of Final Appeal also tossed out the notion that marriage came with a corpus of core rights and obligations, which were by definition only available to married opposite-sex couples. To rely on the fact that same-sex couples were unmarried was circular and self-justifying. The real question that had to be asked was why the benefit in question should be reserved uniquely for married couples. Is there a fair and rational reason, asked the court, for drawing that distinction? To which the answer on the facts of that case was no. The judgment in QT's case is seen as a major step forward for gay rights in Hong Kong, one which has opened the way for equality in a range of other areas. The last thing to mention about uh, QT's case briefly is its name. My client told me afterwards that she chose the letters QT because it sounded like cutie. Thank you for listening to the litigation podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.